and welcome everybody to Wildstorm Addiction. This is episode number 21 for the weeks of December 8th and 15th. I'm Ben Murphy. And I'm Joe David Solis. And this week we'll be talking about some Wildstorm comics that released within a week and we will spoil them. However, Joe's written reviews on the website are spoiler free unless otherwise noted. And we do rate these comics as we review them, except Joe doesn't want to give his ratings anymore. <laughs> just calling you out buddy <laughs> yeah no I told you I wouldn't for the month of December I'm abstaining it's so rude <laughs> it's my protest <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, I don't think it's going to work they're still going to close it <laughs> no I mean I think you can get the point when you read my my reviews how I feel about them or not so far I've been pretty happy and we'll talk about some of the ones for tonight So yeah, they've been great reviews man. well thank you but uh, real quick before we jump into the first review, I did want to mention, you know, uh, we we do try to shout out to our Wallstorm alumni and what they're doing now. Rebecca Isaacs, creator-owned series Magus, number one, came out this past week. So uh, be looking forward to your local comic shop. It's actually by 12 Gauge Comics. So, um, you know, probably not going to have a big print run, but it's definitely worth the read. Just picked it up and read it, and it's really good. It's got, you know, all the beautiful Rebecca Isaacs art and the story is pretty interesting, basically about you know magic coming back into the world, into modern day world. So it's a pretty interesting premise. Y'all should go check that out if you're looking for more of her art. If you were fans of the DV8 miniseries, our first review today. Welcome to Tranquility, One Foot in the Grave, number six, which is written by Gail Simone with art by Horatio Dominguez and a cover by Neil Gouge. And this is the final issue of the miniseries that Gail put out this year and that we were all waiting for as soon as she announced it. You know, after the original series ended and we wanted more tranquility, and we definitely got it with this series. But we got a much darker <laughs> tranquility, which I was very surprised the way this story ended up panning out. I mean, she painted tranquility, of course, as a, as a you know, really cheery place. And, you know, part of the original series was to show that there's, there is some dark undertones to the place. And obviously there's heroes and villains who live there, so... And regardless of their allegiance, they don't necessarily adhere to one idea or the other. And, you know, we found that out here with the introduction of what I think is probably one of the, you know, coolest villains that I've seen in a while just because he's so crazy, which is, you know, Derek Fury, the son of Mayor Fury and Pink Bunny. You know, he, he obviously turned out to be a very tragic character, but at the same time, a very sick and twisted character, too. And I was just really surprised that... Uh, that Gail Simone took us in that direction here. And also what was kind of hard, I guess, to uh, accept about that is that Horatio Dominguez's art is not dark at all. You know, I mean, it's very, it's got a very kind of cartoony almost edge to it. So it was kind of odd to be seeing that, you know, with such a dark story. I mean, you almost, you almost want to bring, you know, Kristen Duce over from uh, Ides of Blood to just, just to do this story, you know, because it is so dark. Basically, you know, it opens up with, um, the Liberty Snots having a concert and uh, Sheriff Lindo's waiting for Derek, you know, kind of unfortunately using the town of Tranquility as, as bait and and knowing that uh, he's going to show up and with the entire town there, you know, obviously you have a lot of the the superpowered beings and she knows that, that Derek's really powerful. So even with all these superpowered beings around, they may not be enough to stop him. And 
you know, while she's waiting for the inevitable to happen, we keep getting backstory about what happened between her and Derek once upon a time. And basically, whenever he um, found out that they were pregnant, you know, he freaked out and, you know, was telling her, well, why, why do you think I would want a child? You know, you don't know what kind of thoughts go through my head and why would I want another one of me in this world, basically? And so he decides to kill, you know, Thomasina by drowning her. And she even makes a comment about it that you know he could have he could have killed her quickly, but that he made her suffer on purpose because he wanted her to think about what she had done. And and in the end, you know, uh, Mayor Fury and Pink Bunny are barely able to save her. And and then you assume somewhere in all this that the baby is lost. And then there's actually an interesting little side notes because uh, we were talking about last issue of why. You know, what's the significance of Mr. Articulate in this story? Because it originally seemed like, like uh, One Foot in the Grave was going to be about him returning. And he returned, and then he kind of fell off, off the radar there for a while. But you see here that actually when she was in the hospital, he came to her and, and uh, watched over her. And and they actually ended up having you know an intimate relationship, which I was like, wow, that was totally out of left field. I mean, did did not see that coming, and it's just kind of weird, but... I guess it goes with the tone of tranquility. Nothing, nothing is ex- exactly normal in this town. Back at the concert, the rest of the citizens are trying to carry on as normal while, while several storylines are coming together. You know, Mayor Fury has gotten a weapon that he f- feels is supposed to be able to destroy Derek. Meanwhile, Thomasina apparently made a deal with um, Salabal, you know, one of the local um, magic users in tranquility. And this part really threw me off because... You know, I didn't go back and read the original series. I just figured, well, I might as well just keep reading to see if I could understand this without really remembering too much about the original series. You know, when she goes to see this fire god or whatever whatever it is to strike a deal with it, I mean, even I, I was like, what is going on here? Where did this come from? And it's explained a little bit better later, but I think it was still kind of out of left field, especially for, for anybody who's just picking up this miniseries and has not gone back and read the original. And then we get to learn the origin of Derek, which was pretty cool, because we get to see him, that uh, Mayor Fury actually dumped him off in an IO research facility, and we actually see some, some rat catchers standing guard, and we see some IO scientists working on Derek. So it was pretty cool that Gail worked that organization in, because you know that's... One of the things that makes the Wildstorm you what it is is the fact that IO has its hands in everything. So it's interesting to see that even here they it's the same thing and basically just explains that, you know, Derek was there and they were experimenting on him and it was almost like as if he was letting them, you know, based on what happened. But apparently when some of the some of the scientists were discussing what happened to Mayor Fury in the original series, you know, with his trial and everything, that's when Derek decides that he's had enough, and he kills all the scientists and then heads out and goes to talk to Colette, who's the one that uh, originally accused Mayor Fury of the crime and convinced her to recant her story. And so you got this big old elaborate plan that Derek has instituted to make sure that his father is free, so that way Derek can not only take his revenge on his father, but basically the entire town of Tranquility. You know, first up, as we, as we come back to the present... Derek is able to take out his father pretty quickly before he even had a chance to use the weapon that he that he had gotten to use against Derek. And then, you know, Derek finds his way to the concert quickly. And this is where we see that um, Salabal's deal with, uh, with that god involved having the entire town of Tranquility 
able to turn basically into uh, the same superpower being that um, that Maximum Man turns into. So the entire town has the same power as him, and they all don the same you know yellow and red costume. And basically, that's the only way that they're able to hold their own against Derek, even though he's still able to take out some of them. Uh, basically, he's got an entire town worth of Maximum Man, you know, coming at him, and they're finally able to subdue him. And then at the end, you know, whenever whenever they realize that, uh, you know, that the only thing they can do is kill him, then that's when his father can't bring himself to do it. And in the end, in the in, in the middle of this very dramatic scene, Gail decides to give us one of her little segues to where we have uh, the character of Hangman come and, and basically do a little, like, comic insert where it shows that uh, Pink Bunny is actually the one that ends up killing her own son. So that's finally the end of Derek and very sad ending for those two. And then uh, as the story wraps up, we see that uh, Gail's leaving us clues of other stories that she wanted to tell, like the one of uh, uh, Sheriff Lindo's sister and how she made the deal with the Sidewinder spirits and, and they watch over her as she recovers. And then we see that, you know, that uh, Thomasina is still questioning why Derek used some of his powers to bring Mr. Articulate back. You know, was it a taunt or was it a gift? You know, she'll never know, but she doesn't care because she's with him again. And then finally we end by seeing that Thomasina did not le- uh, lose her child uh, after Derek attacked her. That she actually had it full term and gave it up for adoption and it was a boy. And we see that uh, that, that boy is living somewhere a normal life. And Thomasina drives by and checks on him every now and then. So, a uh, pretty interesting ending, all in all. I mean, I really liked it, but like I said, the whole thing with the god, if I didn't know anything about Maximum Man, I wouldn't have understood what exactly happened there at the end. So, that was my only thing about this issue. So I just wish you would have made it a little bit more reader-friendly, just in that part of the story, because everything else was fine. This ended up being the final you know, story with the Tranquility characters under the Wildstorm banner. And of course, you know, those of you who've been following World's End, you already have seen that we know what their fate is in World's End. So so this was just a nice little addendum to to that storyline. What did you think, Ben? I really enjoyed it. I, I thought this series was freaking awesome. I, I love what Gail Simone did with bringing this entire world, or this entire city and all its characters into the Wildstorm universe world. Uh, that's a huge task. Because Wildstorm was so big to begin with, and you know there was 16 years of Wildstorm before she came and created Welcome to Tranquility, and to add another huge set of characters on top of that is no easy task. And to see them again, I was just so excited that we were going to get this miniseries, and that was long before we realized the fate of Wildstorm as an imprint. I mean, to me, it's a blessing just the fact that we were able to read this entire series, you know, before the end happened. I thought it was a great final issue. It it summed up the story of Derek, twisted, twisted kid. You know, this is supposed to be a happy place. Welcome to Tranquility is, anyways. Her Tranquility is uh, a retirement community, basically, for superheroes. And it really does have dark areas within it corruption obviously that we saw in the first series so i gave it an eight i think i gave it a nine as a series it was really fun to read i do want to point out something that has nothing to do with the story at all i think we mentioned it in the last 
episode how we're a little annoyed at the sneak peek to the Batman series at the end of every one of these issues. They have a, a thank you to Wildstorm fans for 18 great years. And it's a really cool spread. I really dig it. And it's where they list you know, what books came out for the month. If they had that page at the end of the story and then started the preview for the Batman thing, I'd be totally okay with it. It's just a stupid little nitpick by a fan. Whatever. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm glad they at least did that. I mean, I know what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, it has been funny each issue so far. It's like I keep seeing that same panel of whatever that villain is from Batman yeah. Beyond, you know, and I'm like, ooh, is that more? Oh, wait, no, that's not more of the story, you know? Yeah, it's, <laughs> and, it's slightly confusing, too. Yeah. But, uh, no, it's cool. I mean, we can't dog on it too much. It is Adam Beach and writing it, so. But, yeah, no, I mean, it is nice that they that they throw that together. I was actually uh, happy to see in that thanks to fans that there was some uh, image artwork, some old image stuff. Yeah, yeah, it was, it's a good pick of uh, old and new. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I get what you're saying. One thing I was kind of confused about, too, is that, you know, they kept alluding to different things about Derek. Like, first, you know, she mentioned that he was a rapist, just like, or she kind of hinted to that. And it's like, okay, well, did she do that to her? Did he do that to her sister? And they never really came back to that. I mean, even later when she says, well, he took my baby from me, well... That one makes more sense, I guess, in the end, where it's like technically he did because she can't, you know, have the her son out in the open. I don't know. That was the only thing that I kind of got lost or somewhere along the way. I didn't understand, you know, why she was calling him a rapist. I mean, I don't know if that's something he did otherwise or I don't know, because obviously he had a big problem with females. Right. Yeah. It, that never was well explained. I guess you can infer that he raped her of the life that she should have had or wanted. I don't know. But I don't know if there was a little literal raping there. Man, I really don't want to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, that's fine. I mean, he's the dark character as it is. You know, and to add that into the mix, it just, you know, it's it's kind of like what they did with Dr. Light, you know, over in Identity Crisis in D.C. It's like, it, it is kind of... Uh, you know, you feel kind of dirty. You know, it's like, do you really need that in comics? You know, uh, whatever. Derek, Derek's gone, and you know, in the short time period that he existed, I mean, to me, he was, he was definitely an interesting villain. There's no doubt about that. So, yeah, really. Next up, we have Eyes of Blood, number five of six, written by Stuart C. Paul, art by Christian Duce, and cover by Michael Geiger. In the last issue, we were left with a literal cliffhanger this issue that's where we pick it up at the bottom of that cliff and (laughs) the cart or wagon or whatever that they were on is smashed to bits you see the horses are all dead and bits and pieces and blood and that's what we love about Ides of Blood there's a lot of it and our hero characters Valens and Scipio and the other lady vampire who I forget her name oh Ione (laughs) yeah sorry he actually makes a joke about it since um, he's cracking his neck and he asks Ione if she's in injured because she kind of swears and she's like, no, I really love this Egyptian dress. Scipio even says, why are we talking about dresses? Can somebody get this cross off of my back? Because he's still pinned to that cross that he was being drug on. 
Yes, and that's that's where I'm loving Stuart's writing. It's fantastic, and it's funny all at the same time. And next, we get to go to a lot of Greek dudes talking, which is fun. But basically, it's... <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry, that's a great description. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I'm so good at this uh, reviewing stuff. Yeah. Anyways, it, it, it's Anthony and uh, Marcus, and they're... They're basically bantering back and forth about all the politicians and what they're doing and and what Brutus is doing to basically take control of all of Caesar's holdings in his reign. It's funny because there are two male testicle jokes throughout this little conversation, and I I don't know why, but... All on the same page. Thank you, Stuart. You're (laughs) you're my hero. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and after those two jokes, we get to see Ione take a shower, which is fun. Lots of good eye candy to look at and some more jokes about private parts. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, when you're on a roll, you just gonna keep. Yeah, up. you just keep putting them out there. I mean, that comes back later, too. It's not just, you know. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't stop there. <laughs> and after she manages to find some clothes, <laughs> her and Valenza. Have a little spat about who needs more pity than whom about their upbringing or where they came from. And I don't know, it's a pathetic little way to figure out, hey, let's have sex and feed on a soldier. That's basically what it amounts to, right? (laughs) (laughs) Do you need a better reason? (laughs) No, apparently not. So yeah, they feed on him together and then they make some hot vampire love. Awesome. So they're all fueled and ready to go, and they go out on an a awesome date out on the town to uh, the Esquiline Gate, which is the kingdom of spoil and swill. That's that's what vampires do for a good time, I guess. A lot so, <laughs> so, so they go and they take Scipio out on his first day as a vampire, I guess, since he didn't really get to enjoy you know that other first day technically because he was getting crucified as a vampire wasn't wasn't very fun so technically it's his first night but okay (laughs) you got me there thank you Um, so no go ahead i just just do want to get any emails about that Uh, oh yeah you know because you know we get get, yeah we get so (laughs) many emails I mean, we were fighting for that joke. I really get yep. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> so, the... Hmm, how should I put this? The three amigos, or the three vampires, are walking through the city dump. And they come across the soothsayer that uh, first warned Valens about the Ides of March. He is looking at grubs and bugs and it's kind of silly but that's what he's going to eat and apparently if it has more legs it has more blood and is has more life but valens wants to question him about uh his uh premonition i guess about his life and uh he he takes him back to where the soothsayer lives in this little shanty shack and he actually realizes that that soothsayer had been uh selling antiquities and and stuff to caesar and he was Caesar's best customer. 
Scipio finds, uh, I guess, uh, some paper that has Marcus Brutus's signature on it. That's pretty much that scene, even though it took us so long to get through. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there was so much to discuss. <laughs> uh, yeah, there was. Uh, we go back to Brutus's estate. The three amigos, again, are uh, trying to infiltrate his estate. To infiltrate, they change into their their animal forms. I guess. And I think Scipio, this is definitely Scipio's first time changing and he didn't even know that he could do it. And I think he's the one that changes into the serpent because Valens is the wolf. Yeah. Ioni is the the bat. It's funny because he was like, that was strange. I think I liked it. So (laughs) I don't know if it's instinct or if they had to like kind of help him with that, but it was kind of funny. Just think happy thoughts. Yeah. So... They go poking around, and they see masks and the dagger that, I guess, killed Caesar, and false uh, fangs. Valens gives them all to to Scipio, and he tells them to go take them to Cicero. Then they see Antony. Is that Antony, or is that Brutus? Um, I guess it's Brutus, because it's Brutus's estate. Yeah, because Antony's the, the head of the guards. Right. So Valens and Ioni are still there, and they came across Brutus's mother's room. And so they're kind of hanging out, listening to what's going on in that conversation between Brutus, his mother, and uh, his mother's caretaker. His mother is sick and dying, it looks like, and she definitely has infections. And he even goes so far as to say that she's immortal, so she must be a vampire of some sort. But she's not strong like a normal vampire would be. Yeah, I think they explain it in a second. Uh, they, they do. You, yeah, you catch some of that right now, but uh, we'll get back to that. Right, because they're talking about infections. And um, because uh, and this is what Valens and Ioni are talking about after they heard that conversation. Because when Caesar was killed, he did have bite marks on him and they were infected. I think that same thing had happened to the first kill in this series with Pluto's Kiss Killer. Anyways, the vampire hunter throws a uh, a hook, almost like a fish hook, right through Valens's throat and chin. And it comes out of it, the side of his mouth, and it looks really painful. And <laughs> like a fish. Yeah, and not only does he hook him, he whips him with it, and then it gets torn out of his mouth, which that had to hurt just a skosh. <laughs> you know... I mean, in an old writing class I took, you know, our professor always talked about how you basically create a character and you torture them for the duration of the story. I think Stuart Paul took that to heart. (laughs) He's like, oh, we ripped off his face last time. Let's uh, hook him through the face. I hate to see what's going to happen in the last issue. (laughs) Yeah, all his friends get tortured, too. Yeah, I mean, just because a guy can regenerate, you know, (laughs) he can beat the crap out of him. Yeah, it doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. Yeah. <laughs> so all the soldiers rush in to kind of back up the vampire hunter, not that he really needs it. And then Valens has a nice little little chat with Brutus. And this is where Brutus goes into his past with his mother and how his mother was dying. He had a, a vampire that was infected give her blood to keep her from dying. She had actually been a lover of Caesar. He says that he used to watch in the shadows as he plundered my mother. And you see a little silhouette of them. Yeah, doing that. More sex, people. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, I mean, and it, it just dawned on me. I'm like, yeah, of course. I mean, I don't know in the in real life what uh, his beef with Caesar was, but definitely if that was the case here, you can see why he'd want to kill him. Right. So his mother was dying. This infected vampire gave her blood to keep her alive, and she came back. Not a normal vampire, but kind of messed up and infected. Think of her as like a zombie vampire person. I don't know. So, yeah, he... He definitely wanted to get revenge on Caesar, so we'll go with that. So he is setting up a light tower to get rid of all of the vampires now that Caesar's out of the way. It's a tower that has a spiral staircase, and all his soldiers are setting up mirrors going up those stairs to kind of funnel light down through. So he leads Valens and Ione, the vampire hunter, and Brutus leads them down to the bottom of this, this tower. He introduces those two to Anubis, which is his mother's physician, also a high priest of Pharaoh's necromancers and master of the art of mummification. There's a, there's already a, a vampire on the on the table as they're walking into this. It basically looks like a dungeon or a torture chamber at the base of this tower. So he puts another hook. We love hooks this issue apparently. Puts a hook through this this vampire's nose that's on the table and pulls out the vampire's corrupted shadow soul. Basically this guy can remove their messed up soul and then he burns it on on these coals. And with that he was able to I guess weaponize their souls. Basically. Yeah. So this necromancer pulls out a vampire soul. And he weaponizes it over some heated coals. He calls it the Flame of Shadows, I guess. We get to see what this weapon does with Ione's sister, Soka, who gets brought into that chamber by the vampire hunter. Brutus shows this weapon to Ione and Valens right in front of them by killing Ione's sister with this weapon. And she basically melts in this purple fire that he gives to her. And it's pretty brutal, and Ione's kind of pissed about it. And there's just a purple flaming pile of skull left over. If you guys have been reading through this, Soka's a big woman, so it's a big pile of ash. Yeah. I was going to (laughs) say. Like a bonfire. (laughs) Yeah. Scipio kind of made his way down into the chamber without anybody noticing um, whenever Soka was being brought in because he still has some soldier garb on, so nobody really noticed him. Brutus was like, wow, that was fascinating watching Soka get ashed. Scipio makes his present known to be by uh, saying, so is this, and he punches Brutus right in the face. Brutus is like, you really believe a newborn vampire can stop me? Which, Brutus is a human like he's mortal i can't believe that he would even say that to scipio even though he was you know only one of his guards but he's a vampire now like anybody that's read anything about vampires like they're so much stronger so whatever i guess it's just his arrogance now that he's was able to kill caesar and take control of everything yeah we see off camera somebody say no but he might have a shot and and this is where we actually finally get to see Pluto's kiss killer, I guess, which is a, a vampire with horns, and he looks like an infected vampire, and it looks like he has a mask on. But he takes the the necromancer's head in his hands, and he just pops his head by just crushing his skull. And then the vampire hunter goes after him with uh, some silver stakes, and this infected vampire is immune to silver, And so he pulls out the stakes out of his chest 
or I guess his shoulders, and he plunges them right into the, the vampire hunter's eyes and takes him out pretty quickly. Scipio then is uh, unlocking Valens and Ione's uh, chains that were around their neck to set them free. And so now everybody's free, and that's when the real killing gets to happen. Um, so then the fight ensues, and all the Roman soldiers rush down the tower to help Ione and Scipio change form and, and fly up to start killing them. Brutus goes after the Kiss Killer with his weaponized thing, and he hits him. You, you see two figures, one of them wrapping up Valens, as they go through the wall of the tower and crash out into the ocean. Well, you assume that one of them is Brutus, but that's not the case. It's, it's the Kiss Killer and it's Valens. So they go flying out into the water, and as they're going down, drowning basically in the water... Valens rips off the mask of Plutus Kiss Killer, rips off the mask and horns, and Valens is in shock because Plutus Kiss Killer Jenkins. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me if I'm wrong. Is a corrupted version of him. It, it's it's his same face, right? I actually thought it was Caesar. I thought that's why he says. See, that's why it's confusing to me, because it could be Caesar's. I don't know. Yeah. No, I took it to be Caesar. I thought that was the whole point of why you get the the dialogue that basically ends with him saying, Hail Caesar, you know. So, I mean, we'll see. I mean, either way, it is an interesting cliffhanger if that's that's who it really is. So. And then it goes on. We move over to a prison scene, and there's this character on a gurney. It's a bald head. And uh, no, I'm just kidding. That's the that's the preview for Batman again. I'm sorry. Oh man, you know if, if Adam does get to come on for the last episode, he's gonna give us crap for that. You know that, right? I hope so. Give us something to talk about, I guess. Yeah. No, it was a good read. This Eyes of Blood is. It's been our our shining star in, in all of our reviews that we've gotten to do, you know, over the past year for all of the creator owned. And I, I don't want to speak for both of us, but it's been awesome. And I gave this one another eight and a half nine. I loved it, man. What did you think? Yeah, no, I'm loving this series too. I mean, like we said before, it's just it's just such a well done comic. I mean, it just kills me that I, I just feel like it's not going to get traded, but I so I so hope that it does, you know, because it is it is a great story and it's got great art. You know, Stewart does such a great job. We were talking about last issue about creating characters. You know, created Soka and the Vampire Hunter. You know, who both bought it in this issue, but they were still cool characters. And the fact that he's not afraid to to kill off some of his characters in his story is is cool too because it it ups the 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 stakes in the story and shows that nobody's safe and you know it's a little bit more believable and realistic that that not all the heroes are going to make it especially in such a brutal story like this i mean if it wasn't for valens being a vampire he would have been dead a long time ago you know yeah and uh, so would scipio and <laughs> so would iona and you know, there'd be nobody left. So it's only because of that fact. It makes you appreciate, like what you said earlier about Brutus, the fact that he's still alive. He's here taunting vampires. And uh, even Antony, the the head of the guards, you know, the fact that he's still alive as well. I guess in the end, it, it's the fact that, you know, they're um, limited by the fact that they can only attack at night or whatever because they could have taken out 
you know, if the vampires were organized enough, they could have taken out the humans completely by now. And if it wasn't for, you know, all this uh, magic, magic and experimentation that Brutus is doing, you know, they might not even have a chance creating the, the, the flame of shadows apparently is almost like their nuke or their, you know, biological weapon against the vampires because uh, it's something new. And, and even, even, you know, revealing that it is so cool to show, you know, the Pluto kiss killer is, is here and there's something different about him as well, you know, that silver doesn't affect him and, you know, well, what's, what's the deal with that? And, you know, yeah, the, the final scene, is it, like you said, I mean, I, I, I think it's, it's meant to be Caesar, which ultimately, if that's the truth, I want to, you know, I really want to know what's going on here. You know, Stuart Hesher has not, has not fallen short of putting twists and turns in this story. And that's, what's made it so great as well is that every issue has been just so, chock full of story and just the settings are used I think very well and I mean there's just been there's been so much in here in just five issues and and I mean to have some characters die off already that obviously is the way you should do it when you're leading into the finale you know that the the, the stakes are raised you know people start dying and you start uh, fearing for the lives of the heroes and even though the, you know they're all are all immortal you saw like you showed with with valens that you know there still take some punishment now i just want to make a quick comment about the cover because <laughs> we didn't talk about the cover you know obviously michael uh geiger like when we talked to Stuart in the interview he said that you know he's just kind of getting notes about the issues and coming up with the covers after the fact i guess so obviously he you know put which we, I guess we originally thought was Valens up there, but it's, I guess it's supposed to be Scipio on the cross burning. Mm-hmm. And then you have what's obviously Soka on one, on one side. And then what I assume was maybe an original design for the vampire hunter. You know, it just basically looked like a more slimmed down version because remember he had the crow or chicken, I don't even know, the rooster. Yeah. You know, he had that thing on a chain. So that was interesting to see because that's, the only difference here with the picture of Soka is that, you know, if her hair's not up in the little bob tail or whatever like it is in the story, the vampire hunter looks totally different on the cover. So I just thought that was interesting. Kind of one of the things about, you know, how Stuart was saying that you never, he's never met either either artist, the cover artist or the interior artist. It's just all emails and stuff. Right. So, but you know what? His art is awesome enough to where it's like, uh, it's okay if it's not <laughs> accurate to what's inside because it's still an awesome picture. <laughs> But no, I mean, I'm loving this series as well. I mean, I don't know if we're going to get a chance to review the final issue or not on our podcast. Probably not, because I think it comes out too late in January. But I mean, if this if this is the last time we get to talk about it, I mean, I know that the final issue is going to be great. I mean, it would there would have to be something horrible to happen in the final issue for this to just fall apart <laughs> now, you know, which I don't think it's going to. You know, I hope people just backtrack and check this series out, back order it show some interest man so it can get traded that's the main thing if this thing gets traded i, I, I think it would sell well because people would see see the art and see the hopefully the good reviews and just give it a try i don't know what else to say anymore about this comic <laughs> other than to drag people into the comic store and be like stop buying that issue from marvel or whatever just buy this <laughs> did uh did you give this one a rating at least since it's not a an end and- uh no i I didn't actually. Um, it's probably one of the, probably the, the 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 lesser of the issues. So what if I've been given the other ones like eight to nines? Have I? I don't know if I've given any. But uh, this would be either either an eight or may maybe a seven just because they were talking so much. 
But there was a lot of cool stuff at the end. But it was a very dialogue-heavy issue. I don't even know what to give it anymore. It's awesome. I rate it awesome. <laughs> it has words in it, so I'm going to give it a 7. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Making me read. Stuart, how dare you? <laughs> I just want to see the pretty pictures. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> uh, Stuart knows we love his stuff. We gotta give him a hard time. Now, speaking of fin- final issues, <laughs> let's move on to the final issue of Gen 13, which is Gen 13 number 39, which is written by Phil Hester, art by Creditorian, and an epic cover by Dustin Wynn. I finally found out how to say that. <laughs> Before I start on this, uh, yeah, this is the part where I reminisce about Gen 13 because it was definitely one of my favorite titles for years and. It is really sad to see it. And, you know, the first issue I picked up was the miniseries was issue two. So I actually missed the original first issue. But pretty much once I caught up with number two, I followed it, you know, from then till now. But I was just thinking it would be interesting to do a first and last issue comparison of each of these titles that are ending. It's like, you know, the first authority issue is probably cl- closer to this one. Uh, and, of course, the the first Wildcats issue uh, compared to whatever the last one is when we review it, it's going to be interesting. But, you know, I just I just think back to when, you know, Caitlin and the other kids were, you know, in Project Genesis, and then it's like, I wonder if you just skipped ahead to this issue, and it opens up by saying, you know, basically, we're at the end of the world, you know, we have we have um, Kaizen X, you know, and his army against the robot army, and we've got, the, you know, the kids from Gen 13, but they're not all the same, you know, the only ones you would recognize is, you know, Fairchild, and later on in the issue, you know, uh, Burnout. And, uh, and then there's all these other new kids, is you know, it's Diva and Hardbody and Wind Sprint and, and Runt. And I was just like, that would be, that would have been so interesting, you know, back in, what, 92, 93, <laughs> to look into the future and see this issue and be like, how in the world did we get to this point, <laughs> you know? <laughs> how did we go from Project Genesis to this? So I just thought that was interesting. But yeah, basically, we saw that uh, the robots that Hardbody had stayed behind to to lead, you know, show up and they they engage uh, Kaizen X's forces, who are uh, obviously all from Sparta now. I don't know if you saw on the first page, but they're all shirtless and they all have red capes. <laughs> so I thought that was interesting. But yeah, Hardbody shows up and apparently he's taken a lot of him to his robotic form, I guess, obviously, because he's got to keep that going while he's still got the robot church following him and but you know he shows up to to help them and while they're taking care of his forces you know kaizen x is still trying to take out the the gen 13 kids on his own because apparently he's got a a suit that makes him very powerful and him and fairchild end up in another you know knockdown drag out fight again so it was pretty cool that uh the catlin we get to see her in action one more time handing out a good old a good old fashioned Fairchild beatdown to Kaizen. You know, the next few pages is basically just her and him just beating the crap out of each other and you know, even when some of the other kids step in like uh Ditto tries to step in and help and all her clones get incinerated for her trouble and it almost sends Fairchild over the edge again because she thinks Ditto's dead, but you know, thankfully she was just using him as decoys and the real Ditto uh staying safely out of sight. <laughs> Apparently Kaizen is impressed by Fairchild enough to where he starts claiming that uh, she would make a good mate for him. <laughs> and uh, in the middle of all this, when she's when he's getting the upper hand on her, you know, burnout shows up, and he's uh, his form has completely changed again. 
you know, the last issue we saw that he he had absorbed all the radiation from the from the blast at the nuclear power plant and that he was basically just, you know, like a bright burning figure. I mean, all you could see was his bones and stuff. And this time when he shows up, he's like a purple flame. Like his whole body looks like basically the human torch, torch but purple. So I thought that was interesting that it's like he's starting to gain control of these powers that he's, that he's uh, or this radiation that he's absorbed. And But he's, like he tells Caitlin, you know, he still can't be around people very long without, you know, being in danger of killing them. With the radiation, and he's able to subdue Kaizen X for a while. But uh, you know, he tells her that that he can see that the power that's coming from his suit is at different towers around the world that are feeding him energy. So Wind Sprint heads off, you know, at uh, super speed to go start taking those out. And meanwhile, Kaizen still coming at them. He's still still going strong. And even when the I thought this was interesting, I reminded me of the scene for Superman two when. When General Zod's beating up on Superman, and and the citizens are like, leave him alone, and they start, you know, trying to go after Zod and the other two. That's exactly what they do to Kaizen X here, and he's like, really? I mean, he just uses his suit to just, you know, take out a bunch of the citizens. Finally, Pathcutter's sister Emily, you know, she's awake now, and she uses her power against Kaizen to basically hide him from his own tower, so that way his suit can no longer gain power, so it leaves him wide open. And Fairchild steps in and just delivers the beating of his life and basically busts up his entire suit to where he's just, you know, a crumpled heap on the ground. And then, you know, he, he claims to be pulling the old, you know, huh, I'm not going to be defeated by you. So he starts a countdown where he claims that he's going to self-destruct. And as the kids, you know, get away from him, they show that it was just a, a trick for them to, to, to get away. And this was kind of a confusing part because it looks like he flies away. And then there's like an explosion in the background, so it's like... But they kind of make fun of that. I think Runt was, was like, he tricked us, and then they couldn't tell who's saying it because they're all darkened out, but they're like, you're kidding, right? How long have you been doing this? They're not dead unless you see a body, man. And then it's like 50-50. <laughs> so I thought that was a nice little jab at the superhero genre. And apparently, you know, I don't know what Emily did different, but apparently using her powers for that caused her to lose them. So that way, you know, at least Pocatello wide open to any outside attacks because she can no longer hide the town. Ultimately, you know, we get a nice little epilogue where it shows the kids are, are helping to rebuild the town and they're recovering from the battle. And, um, you know, Fairchild is basically, you know, tell, telling Bobby that they, they'll protect the town now that it's wide open. And Bobby says that he'll literally sit on top of one of the mountains and be a beacon to any refugees who uh, who need a place to to get to and... And for the ones, you know, who are evil, that he'll keep them away as well. And there's a nice little scene between them at the end where she kind of wants to tell him how she feels about him. She's still not able to say it, but he gets it and he just flies off into the sky. And I love, I just love the scene of her looking up at him and he flies away all happy. (laughs) And that's the last issue of Gen 13. Sniff, sniff, cry, cry. I liked it. I mean, I just kind of wish, I don't know, I don't know how, how soon... Hester found out about the end of Wildstorm, so it seems that he catered it, you know, to have it have an ending of sorts, which it still did. But I don't know. I mean, I was kind of torn because obviously he was writing this story for the purposes of this new team to go in a different direction, you know. And then all of a sudden it's like, no, this is the last issue of Gen 13 ever. So it's like, okay, well, then we'll just end it (laughs) since you know grunge and roxy and you know rainmaker they're all in other books right now it, it that was the only thing that kind of sucked because it's like well you know we're in gen 13 and it is nice that the the last page 
does in with two of the original members, you know, Fairchild and Burnout. But I don't know. It was. It, I mean, it's bittersweet to begin with. But I just was like, you know, I kind of wish that somehow we could have had them all together again. So that was the only thing that kind of sucked. I mean, it, it just made it that that much more sad. Is that uh, you know we don't get to see them all be together one more time. So that was just my thoughts on the issue. What did you think, Ben? No, I'm with you on that. I felt the same way. There was no reunion, and and I guess there never could have been unless there was one more issue after Wildcats number 30, but that's going to wrap up the universe. So, yeah, we don't get Grunge or Rainmaker or Roxy back. So, yeah, we do get to see Caitlin and and Bobby, but that's that's not our Gen 13. That's not what we grew up with. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, that's kind of the, the, the thing that I'm torn about because it, it is more realistic, you know, because obviously they wouldn't, you know, they stayed together for a while before they got to this point. Yeah. You know, so it's like, uh, you know, you kind of got to give and take, you know, it's it's more realistic this way, but it still sucks. And, you know, who knows, maybe Adam Beachin has enough time to throw in a little reunion and walk as 30. I don't know. I guess we'll see. But I, I'm not I'm not waiting for it because he's got so much other stuff that he has to <laughs> has to deal with in Wildcats number 30 so yeah i i mean i actually only gave this book an a six which isn't a bad rating but i think the thing that was funny to me was you know these were bi-monthly didn't draw out the story any it just didn't give you as much depth in the story because they were bi-monthly so we had to keep moving along in the timeline but didn't get as much detail so this fight with kaizen x could have been so much more unique but we really only got like clips of it but i think what made me smile about this issue is just to see cruddy's art which is fun and has gotten so much better throughout the whole run there's a couple shots of kaizen x and the way that he draws him it just made me laugh because it just it makes me think of Dragon Ball Z a little bit, just the way that he draws him in the action. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. Yeah, there was definitely a lot of, uh, he's definitely got a lot of 90s flair, you know, going on here. When Kaizen's jumping, you see the little bubble dots around his hand. That's a Jim Lee thing, you know. <laughs> yeah. Jim Lee was the one that I always saw used to do that, especially with Spartans, energy beams, you know. That that was just something that always stuck in my mind. It's funny the little things you remember. But yeah, it was cool, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, Cruddy does have a lot of J. Scott Campbell influence in his work, too. Mm-hmm. So it was appropriate to end with an artist who, you know, obviously grew up with all this stuff just like we did. And you can tell in his art that he's, like, paying homage to all that. And so that was that was cool. And that was, I mean, I love his Caitlin. Yeah, he fits the team very well. I, I love every every time he draws her. I mean, that's why that one shot of her looking up at this in the sky at Bobby as he flies away. I just was like, that's perfect. It's just a perfect ending, you know, to see her just where she's come from. I mean, really, like I was saying earlier, can you think about that? You know, from Project Genesis to this. <laughs> that is a long journey. Definitely would have never seen this coming if you would have told me, you know, when Gen 15 first started. It's like, yeah, here's the final issue, and you'll never guess what happens. <laughs> but it was cool. I mean, it, it was good. And uh, the Dustin Wind cover was cool. I mean, so say goodbye to your favorite team team for now. We'll wow. see. We'll see who they who they bring into DC. I know Fairchild will be one of the first that they bring into DC, but it'd be nice if we just got the whole team, but we'll see. Let's not talk about that nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> 
Other Wildstorm releases for the last couple weeks. On December 8th, we had Free Realms, book two, Kanan Lynch, number four, and Wildstorm Presents, Planetary Lost Worlds, which is a compilation of some old, older uh, planetary one-shots, I think. On December 15th, we had Assassin's Creed, The Fall, number two of three, Two-Step, which is uh, Warren Ellis, Victorian Undead 2, Sherlock Holmes vs. Dracula, number 205. New digital comics offerings, courtesy of Comicsology.com, were Chuck, number 5, The Authority, volume 1, number 9, Ex Machina Special, number 2, Kanan Lynch, number 3, Mysterious the Unfathomable, number 3, which I think we had forgotten to talk about that that one had released so one and two came out a couple weeks prior planetary number 20 sleeper season two number one and world of warcraft number four i know we'd already sent out a thanks to austin for last time because i didn't know that we were going to get the 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 planetary uh lost worlds one that one's definitely got to be the last one we get (laughs) (laughs) i would think so yeah i don't think he's going to send us anymore but again austin we do thank you for that i mean absolutely uh, you know, we didn't review this obviously because it was just you know reprinting old stories. But you know, obviously those are greatly appreciated. So, just got you know, Austin and all those guys have been awesome. And uh, remember earlier how we were saying you know all those emails we get. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me let you how to know if you want to get in on that feeding frenzy that is the email <laughs> you know that we get every week. Yeah, you can actually find me at Twitter at just twitter.com backslash scripture78. Uh, you can also look up both me and Ben at the Wildstorm Resource Wiki. Uh, he's yoyomaster146. You can also find the podcast at twitter.com slash wildstormaddict. And you can email us, email us at wildstormaddiction at gmail.com. We're counting down here. I think we've got, is it just one more? One more. And we do have something special lined up, so you're going to have to stick it through the end. And we'll have our last review of X-Files 30 Days of Night and obviously Wildcats number 30. So get your get your favorite drink out and <laughs> get ready. <laughs> get ready to say your goodbyes. We will be talking to you all then. Later. Later.